0: Well, it's the end of June. In fact, it's the final Thursday of June 2017, and that means that uh, next week it'll be the 4th of July. And the 4th of July, we know what it means for those who are uh, residents and citizens of the United States of America, but for us, the Jewish community, the 4th of July over the last 40-plus years has even extra significance. It was Sunday, the 4th of July 1976, when the Entebbe raid took place. Those of you who are, uh, let's see, I guess under the age of 35, <laughs> uh, um, or, or a variety of ages, actually. Um, I suggest you take the time to learn about the miraculous episode that we call, uh, Operation Jonathan, uh, Mifza Yonatan, uh, at one time known as Operation Thunderbolt, uh, when the Israeli, uh, Israeli army went into Entebbe, Uganda, and saved hostages who were being held because they were Jewish at the old airport in Entebbe, Uganda. Rabbi Stephen Weil, who's of course senior managing director at the OU, is also known, has quite a reputation for being a, uh, an Entebbe expert, can tell us a lot about what happened 41 years ago Next week, Rabbi Weil, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's an honor to be with you, Nahum. Thank you. I greatly appreciate it. I remember when it happened. Do you rem- I remember when it happened in terms of the episode itself. Do you remember when you became obsessed? If that's a, uh, if that's the proper word, with the Antebi rescue. Well,
1: it, it shaped me as a Jew as a kid. I, I remember the experience. You know, the whole Jewish world was frozen that week. And then on July 4th, when the whole world was focused on America, when they announced the success of the raid, and what it did for us as Jews, what it did for Jewish pride, and what it did for us in terms of gratitude to Israel as a people. Because here it was, and that's Menachem Begin saying a speech in the Knesset on Monday morning the next day, that, you know, 40 years ago, I should say, he, he said actually 30 years ago, when selections were being made between Jews, I remember he spoke about, he spoke about Dr. Mendigala and the German doctors. Right. Because who made the selections of Entebbe, Wilfred Burris, and Brigitte Kuhlmann? These were members of the infamous Bader Meinhof gang, who partnered with the PFLP. And they made the selection between the Israeli and Jewish passengers on one hand and others on the other. And he said, then there was no one, no one to save us. He said, now. God gave us the ability for the first time in 2,200 years, God gave us a nation, an IDF, where if any Jew in any place is persecuted, is humiliated, or is in a state of, of travail, God has given us the ability to protect ourselves. And he talked about the difference. You know, and it was very powerful coming from Bacon because he'd lost everyone in his family in right.
0: the war. Right. Those who are not Jewish... Uh, those who were not Israeli citizens were released on day one at Entebbe. Actually,
1: on Wednesday, the, the the hijacking took place on Sunday, and when Israel agreed for the first time in its history to negotiate with the PSLP, because at that point they didn't have a formidable military plan, what the the Palestinians and Germans did was they released the, the, all the other passengers, and, and the ones they kept there were eighty nine passengers that had Israeli passports, and there were four that were conspicuously looking Jews. So those 93 were kept. And to the credit of uh, of David, his name was Barros, He was he's still alive at 92. He was the captain of the Air France flight. He insisted that he and every member of the crew, even though they were allowed to be released, they were going to stay with the Israeli and Jewish passengers. So 105 were kept. And on Wednesday of that week, everyone else was released. And that's really where the miracle began, because when Mossad interviewed all of these passengers as they came to Charles de Gaulle Airport, they were able to pick up certain pieces of information that enabled them to have the plan, what you referred to as Operation Yonatan.
0: Uh, Rabbi Steve Weil is with us, and Tebby 41 years ago next week. Um, tell, me, tell me something more about the Air France captain and crew deciding to stay now. Now, now that I'm no longer a kid <laughs> and I am an adult, it it, it it is even more of an overwhelming thought when you think of people ready to essentially sacrifice their lives for people that they did not know, just people that they felt responsible for. Um, what can you tell us, in addition, regarding the decision by the Air France crew?
1: Uh, the, 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 the captain at the time, I think he was 52, so was a young man, he actually fought, you know, in World War II as a pilot against the Germans. And uh, he, he felt, look, first of all, he was trained, but secondly, you know, he understood what this was all about because he had fought against the Germans. He was married to a, a German woman who herself was one of these Germans that was abhorred at what they had done to the Jews during World War II. Hmm. Do you think... So he's, a, he's a special man. In fact, you uh, deal they call it Ynet News, last year for the 40th, they interviewed him and his wife. And uh, he's a very, very special person. He actually maintained a relationship with, with various members of the, uh, the IDF in the aftermath of this. and In fact, Bibi Netanyahu went to him to thank him for what he had done.
0: Do you think that he got pushback from his crew? regarding this decision
1: it's hard to know because it, and the reason i say that is he claimed in the interview which was a very noble thing of him that this was something that the whole crew agreed to right. whether it was or not we don't really know the truth
0: right understood um and Tebby 41 years ago next week or by steve weil is with us live via telephone the um the planning uh say it again i'm sorry.
1: The Hashkaha in this story, is, it, it's a miracle in, in, on five levels. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples. Sure. That, you know, we call people a, a pat rack. You know, they, they never throw anything out. Right. When, when Meir already in the 50s, was sending water engineers to the black African countries to try to save them from starvation and famine. So Uganda was one of these countries they helped. And one of the people who was there was given it, as you mentioned, Nahum, it's, it was the old terminal of the Airport, but it was the original airport. So it was an Israeli firm that was given the architectural blueprints to bid on this, to make a bid on, the, on building it. They didn't get it. It was an Italian firm that built the airport. But he never threw anything out, and he had saved the architectural blueprints. So he brought them to the IDF, and on Wednesday, when the released passengers shared with them the description of the building, they realized that nothing had been changed from the original building. The entrances were the entrances. The stairwell to the second floor where the, where the Ugandan soldiers were being quartered was the same. The VIP lounge where the, the Palestinians were sleeping. That was all the same. So they, had, they could create a Hollywood blueprint and do a practice run on it so they would at least have intelligence and know how to attack the building. And that, that was one thing. The other thing was that, that every time Idi Amin had come to meet with the terrorists and to speak to the hostages, he came in a black stretch Mercedes limousine followed by two Range Rovers of his elite soldiers. Well, they said that's, that's the perfect surprise that we have. They went to the Department of Motor Vehicles in Israel looking for a black stretch Mercedes limousine. There wasn't one in the whole country. It turned out that there was an, an Arab who lived in Yerushalayim, in the east part of Jerusalem, who had an older model, white, stretch Mercedes limousine. So what are they going to do? They're going to come and tell them, you know, they're doing a raid. They came with a story. We've got a film crew, and we're making a movie. It's costing the camera crew and the producers and the actors. We'll give you whatever you want. We'll need the car for a week. You know, we might tweak it a little bit, but we'll promise you we'll give it back to you. So he laughed at them. He says, this piece of junk, this ashfar, you can have it. <laughs> what happened? They didn't know what he meant. They get the car. This, it didn't start, so they had to put in a first starter. They did the practice run Friday night. It didn't start. They had to do an alternator, a second starter. They had to bring in a Mercedes mechanic. You know, they had all kinds of Mercedes buses in Israel, but not limousines. They had to bring in a mechanic, then they had to quarantine him on the base because now he knew what it was. Right. And it, was it was hysterical. They painted it black. They put on the Ugandan flag, and that was part of it. Unbelievable. I mean, uh, there, there's a, like, three others. There was a whole group of, of uh, Air Force guys. A guy by the name of Shuki Shami, he's still alive. he's still has a very high position in the Israeli Air Force today. At the time, he was a child of survivors, a guy maybe 25 years old. They had just come back from Georgia. Martin Marietta, they 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 produced this thing called the Hercules C one hundred and thirty. You know the big cargo transport Mm, plane. Right. They learned to fly these things. Well, it was the first time Israel had ever acquired something like that. They actually had a vehicle now of how to how to transport medical crews, jeeps, troops, etc. So they had the ability of something that had enough fuel to get them there. The problem was is they could get there flying under radar. They didn't have enough fuel to get back. Right. So they had connections with the Kenyans, and they called up. There were two members of the government they felt in Kenya that they could talk privately to. And the Kenyans hated the Ugandans. Idi Amin had tried to, you know, foment revolution in that country. And they said to them, they said, "Look, the negotiations are going nowhere." The Palestinian, you know, we will not release any Palestinians from our prisons. who have Jewish blood on their hands who have killed innocents, and the Palestinians have said to us, "You don't dictate policies. We tell you who to release, not who to release." And it's going nowhere. And we may have to do a military raid, but the only way we can do this is if we can refuel. Well, Nairobi is literally, you know, by, by air is is minutes. It's a few minutes from from Kampala, Uganda, where Entebbe was. So that. They asked them, and they, the Kenyan said, we've got to think about this. We'll get back to you. So hours later, this is Thursday, they called them back, and they said the following, two conditions. Number one, you never called us. You never asked us. You'll have your LL people come and say there's a flight coming from South Africa that's got mechanical problems, and then we're going to tell the world what could we do. You know, it turned out it wasn't an LL flight. They said fine, we, we can agree to that. Second condition. Idi amin has got eleven Russian MiGs sitting there in Ententi Airport. Right. In two minutes those election, those eleven Russian MiGs will destroy our capital city. We're through. We have no way of defending ourselves because the world might believe us, but Idi Amin never will. And we can't we can't tolerate an attack from Idi Amin. You've got to take out the Russian MiGs. So now this turned into a military operation. And in fact, Shaul Mofaz, who at the time, like everyone else's name, was something that no one knew because this was all top secret, his job, and they had to bring these, these Humvees with RPGs attached to them, their job was to destroy the, the uh, Ugandan Air Force. So what, is, what choice did Israel have? And, and at that point, the man who was supposed to run the operation, Ehud Barak, who was the head of Sayer at Macau, Ehud Barak was taken off the, the mission on Thursday, sent to Kenya because of his relations with the Kenyans, and they called up Yoni Netanyahu, who was, he was down in the Negev working with soldiers, and he was put on to the job on Thursday. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to go on for too long, but there's, there's like literally five or six of these phenomena that all added up at the right time.
0: The MiGs were destroyed before, during, or after the, uh, the actual rescue.
1: After the hostages were
0: taken off,
1: from touchdown to takeoff in terms of the hostages, the goal, the plan was 60 minutes. It was 51 minutes. And the longest period of the 51 minutes was trying to get a count because right. people were traumatized and in shock. Right. And after that first plane took off, one of the latter groups of soldiers, which Shaul was in charge of, they took out the Russian MiGs, and they were the last to take off from the airport.
0: And Yoni Netanyahu's uh, uh, death is uh, considered, I don't know, a fluke, an accident, uh, just exception in terms of the way the operation was going. Are those terms correct in describing the way he was taken out?
1: So I'll tell you, there's, there's more than one account to it. I'm going to tell you the account, and I interviewed many people for this. This was the account that I understood to be the correct one. And, and I, can't, I can't guarantee this. I can't promise this. On Friday night, when they did a practice run, it was an absolute debacle. The security cabinet, who still did not approve the the plan until they were way into the air, until Shabbos afternoon, they said the definition of whether this is a success or not, the litmus test, is 25 dead, meaning between the hostages and the soldiers. If less than 25 are killed, this will be considered a success. If it's twenty five or more, that was their, their red line. Right. Well they did a practice run on Friday night and it was an absolute debacle. Not only did the car not start, there was no element of surprise. So oh. when the soldiers were put to sleep, you know, said get some sleep we may be taking off tomorrow morning. Yoni Netanyahu and the squad commanders stayed up till three thirty four in the morning and they redid the plan. Now part of redoing the plan was they knew that there was glass windows. They had to have somebody sitting on the tarmac, which was Yoni running the operation. Right. He's a dead duck. Put, putting yourself out on the tarmac, your target practice for anybody in the tower. He knew he was setting himself up, exposing himself. But he, you had to have someone who could see the one group that was going into the east entrance, which is where there are always two terrorists you know, waiting at the east entrance, guarding the building. And there are always two terrorists on the west entrance, on the other side of the building. You needed someone who's, who's commanding operations who can see all the different squads going into their specific locations, commanding and letting them know what's happening, where fire's coming from. So he set himself up in a way where he was exposed, as opposed to the rest of them that would have the camouflage of the building. Right. He gave his life, knowing this. This was one of the tweaks that was made in the plan. You, you talk about Messiris Nefesh. He gave his life for the Jewish nation
0: unbelievable and he knew he was doing it as well
1: yeah he knew he was exposing himself to to to, to a sniper fire but but they they felt that that was crucial he felt it was crucial to make the operation run
0: unbelievable uh mivtza operation jonathan which until uh the uh in, until the death of yoni netanyahu was known as operation thunderbolt The 4th of July, 1976, an amazing miracle with so many coincidences, quote-unquote, as Rabbi Weil has described. Uh, Do do you sometimes think what would happen if a hostage situation like that happened today, if if the identical circumstances were being played out in 2017 as opposed to 41 years ago?
1: It's a great question, and I'm going to say something now that's totally speculative. In the aftermath of Yitzhak as you referred to it, Malcolm, right. the French, the Germans, and remember the debacle of Munich that cost us 11 innocent lives, right. the Americans, all of them, in the aftermath of, of July 4th, 1976, they created these elite military units, what we would call anti-terror units in other words, Sayeret Matkal that today everybody knows, at that time Sayeret Macau was classified. No one knew the name Ehud Barak, Yoni Netanyahu, Sholmothat, no one knew any of these names. It's all classified. But the concept of Sayeret Macau, that was duplicated by all major Western nations. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the famous quote, when Yitzhak Rabin, who was Prime Minister at the time, at 5 a.m. Israel time, which was 10 p.m. Saturday night in America, He called up President Gerald R. Ford, and he said, you know, Mr. President, I understand you've you've probably heard of the there's rumors going on, because the BBC was already reporting something at that point. And he said, I apologize, this is something that was top secret, I want to share with you. They're not home, they're they're in international water, so we think they're going to be okay. We have very positive reports, this is what happened. I'll fill you in when we know everything. And there's like a, a silent pause. And President Ford responded to Yitzhak Rabin, who was very nervous about this because America was a good friend, and they hadn't shared anything with them. And he said to to the prime minister, "Mr. Prime Minister, I want to thank you for giving the United States of America the greatest birthday present we could have ever asked for. Mm. Now, remember, the whole world, Queen England herself, who we revolted from, the whole Western world was there." in the United States to celebrate with President Ford in America, the 200th birthday, of the bicentennial. Right. What did he mean by that statement? The last, They felt that the last country who'd stood up to terrorism, Israel, now had capitulated. In fact, on Wednesday afternoon, in those days, the New York Post had an afternoon paper. Right. Wednesday afternoon's paper came out and said in big, bold, black letters, like only the New York Post can do, Israel surrenders. Israel surrenders. Why? Because it was the last country that now had buckled and capitulated to terrorists. And what Ford was saying to Robin is, thank God someone is willing to stand up. Now the the skies of the world, human citizens have the ability to... The the terrorists don't control the airways. They don't control the skies. Someone who stood up to them. And, and, And in the aftermath of that, America, Germany, France, all of these countries they basically duplicated the concept of, say, matkal That's why I think today, to a certain degree, we're actually in in a better place because countries are prepared
0: for this kind of a thing. Hmm, Interesting. Plus, of course, the whole, and I'm not saying this to be funny, the whole social media aspect of it would certainly lend itself to be a much different type of situation today than it was 41 years ago. Uh, That we could analyze for hours, frankly, in terms of uh, how, how the instantaneous communication uh, you know, would, would make it a much different story. Uh, Rabbi Wilde, greatly appreciated remembering Entebbe is a very important thing for us, for our community, and certainly for our children. 41 years ago next week, 4th of July, 1976, the rescue at Entebbe, which will uh, be which will leave its mark for a long, long time on the Jewish world and really the world in general. Rabbi Stephen Wiles is, of course, the uh, Senior Managing Director at the OU. Thank you so much for the time and for helping us remember on this Thursday morning.
1: It's always a privilege and an honor, and thank you for everything you do for the community now.
0: I greatly appreciate that. More coming up. It's JM and the AM. <laughs>